as part of that, and those who didn't receive it, this was in the setting of HIV testing, um, and there was no difference in subsequent STI diagnoses among those individuals. So some of our counseling, there's actually some data that it um, doesn't have the impact that we want it to, and among MSM, there were 15% increase in STI acquisition in those who get counseling. And so there might actually be some harm. Not only is there maybe no good, but there might actually yeah. be harm from it. And um, the, one of the things I like to bring that up is because we, it makes sense and we would hope that that would work, but I think we have to continue to consider the data suggests that we might actually be doing harm by doing some of these interventions um, with the data that we have. So. Um, these are the CDC guidelines for heterosexual women. Um, I think risk assessment in women is particularly challenging because often their risk is from their sexual partners um, for heterosexual women. Um, but a PrEP is recommended for women um, and um, is in you know, all the, the guidelines. Um, there is still a lot of perception that PrEP does not work in women. Um, and um, these are data, this is a nice graph from AVAC which just shows that um, the percentage of detectable drug levels is associated with effectiveness, and MSM are here at the sort of upper right-hand corner of the graph, and then heterosexual serodiscord and couples are also at the upper right-hand, um, and then women are sort of in the middle and um, towards the lower level of the graph. However, that's driven mostly by um, adherence. And so these are data um, that just looked at some of the PK that suggests that um, PrEP for MSM is particularly forgiving um, for missed doses, but for women, um, it's not particularly forgiving, um, and that higher levels of adherence are likely necessary in order to achieve the protection. And um, the biological plausibility of this is really, uh, we think, driven by the lower tissue levels that exist in the um, vaginal and cervical tissue compared to rectal tissue um, for sites of exposure. Um, and so I think uh, PrEP definitely works for women, um, and that our counseling is really around um, higher levels of adherence. There's been some interesting data that's looked at whether or not um, BV impacts PrEP efficacy. Um, and so this was a study that looked at um, in the tenofovir versus placebo gel um, that there did seem to be a difference in efficacy depending on the um, dominant strains, lactobacillus or non-lactobacillus dominant, um, and that when you had um, a uh, lactobacillus dominant that you did see um, a lower um, uh, infection rate compared to those who received placebo, but when you had a non-lactobacillus or had some uh, back, uh, vaginal dysbiosis, that it actually uh, erased the efficacy. So um, some interesting studies, th these microbicide studies show this. Um, however, oral PrEP doesn't appear to be impacted, and so we um, try to counsel our patients that um, there does not seem to be an impact on um, vaginal dysbiosis for oral PrEP in the same way that it's been seen for, um, for microbicides. Okay, so we're gonna go on to the next case. So um, this is a 34-year-old MSM who has sex with new partners approximately twice per month. Um, he doesn't wanna take a daily pill because he, he feels his uh, sexual exposures are relatively infrequent. Um, but he doesn't always want to use condoms. So what do you recommend? Encourage him to use condoms. Uh, his exposure's low, don't worry about PrEP. Take the PrEP uh, daily, have him start it seven days before each time he has sex, or prescribe on-demand, or what we call 211 PrEP, even though it's not FDA approved.
All right. So we got 82% who want to prescribe on demand, uh, seven who would encourage daily or to start seven days before. Um, Annie, do you want to take this one? Yeah. Um, so I think that it sounds like the audience is familiar with the Ypres-Gay um, study, which was a French trial that looked at 2-1-1 prep and uh, that looked like it worked very well. But one of the challenges is, is that that was a very um, – well-educated, homogenous, French, you can make up that what you will, population. <laughs> um, I, I don't know if that's good or bad. And it worked very well um, there. And I think there's been increasing interest, but we just don't have great data on 2-1-1 and other more heter uh, 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 heterogeneous populations. That being said, I think increasingly centers are having experience with this. People want this. Um, and so I think that our experience, and Hyman, you can speak to this more than I, uh, that that on-demand works actually well. If you teach people how to use it, they have to keep getting um, testing for it, um, but it should be limited to men um, for the reasons that, that, that you brought up. But I think it creates a little bit of concern for those of us who are used to daily prep, but there are data to support this. We just need to counsel them, and hopefully not in the wrong direction, because right. it sounds like our counseling is pretty bad. Fraught <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. with problems yeah. sometimes. Yeah. So uh, yes, as uh, Annie pointed out, so there are um, there are, are good data uh, from Ypres-Gay. There's now um, more follow-up data that two-on-one or sort of uh, intermittent on-demand prep um, is highly effective in preventing um, HIV. I think that some individuals would encourage daily prep. Did you have something you wanted to say, Steve? No. After you're done, yeah. Okay. Um, and that um, we've seen in, um, as we've looked at sort of prep uptake overall, we've done some surveys with MSM as part of some of the surveillance, behavioral surveillance, as well as some grinder and um, other social media. Um, and not wanting to take a daily pill is actually a pretty frequent reason why individuals do not want to be on prep, um, even though they have uh, a risk for ac acquisition of HIV. Um, and so I think that this might expand the pool of individuals who might be able to initiate PrEP um, and provide us an opportunity to reach people who are otherwise um, missing. So before I go forward, I want to see Yeah, I just want to point out, I would also have prescribed on demand despite the, the, the um, shortage of, of data and from multiple studies. But I think it leads to the point that we all understand, but sometimes our colleagues understand is that is that even though you know the ideal patient may follow everything we say, including less ice cream and you know more exercise, that you're not going to you know get him to use more condoms if he doesn't use condoms, nor are you likely to get him to take a daily pill, no matter how much you educate him with graphs and charts mm -hmm. and studies. Um, and so you have to, you know, I feel you have to sort of meet the patient. Um, and if this meets the patient with all the caveats and the follow-up um, to see how they're doing. Likewise, starting seven days before, I think studies that looked at that showed that that was impossible. I mean, no one really knows <laughs> seven days before if they're having infrequent, you know, yeah. um, that they're going to be doing so. So all these options are curious, but I do think that we, you know, this just demonstrates that all of us in this room essentially want to meet the patients where they are. I would just make one other comment about that, which you which you raises with two one one. It's two hours before, yeah. and so I, uh, planning. I don't know, you know, like it's two hours, to, to, right? But it's but the, when they they started, it was two to twenty four hours, but not five minutes, yeah. you know. And so there's that piece. Yeah. But I also just want to point out from from sort of the contraceptive world, you know, women went through all this 
similar research a long time ago where it was like, oh, if you give people contraception, then they're going to have hor you know, they're going to have sex with everybody, and if you give people Plan B, all these horrible things will happen, and really our society didn't fall apart. And I think we're kind of going through that a little bit with prep of like, what if you let people do what they wanted to do? What would happen? And I think we just have to rely on the data and, and give people the tools that they need. Yeah, and, and I would say that people are already doing what they want to do, and they're just not telling us. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, and, you know, I think we need... I have teenagers, I know. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, uh, and so how do we get, how do we get beyond these 38,000 infections we're seeing every year? And I think this is, as you pointed out, meeting people where they are. Um, and um, and uh, there's some data on, like, the... So MSM are much better at planning when they will not have sex than when they will have sex. Um, and so figuring out when that two hours and if you can be, and so in our, in our work it's been about can you plan sex or can you delay sex? Can you be very creative with your partners about figuring out how to get a two hour gap if you just took your pills? Um, and people are quite creative. So, um, <laughs> so this is the, um, this is the, the, um, the, the schema for Ypergay. So as was astutely pointed out, it's two tablets of Truvada. Um, two to 24 hours before sex, so those are the, um, the happy faces. Um, and then it's one pill um, 24 hours later, and then one pill 48 hours after that. And then if there are more happy faces, or maybe some straight faces, um, you know, additional pills um, after that. And so, um, and about a third of individuals go back and forth between daily and on demand because, um, you know, they might have one encounter and then not be able to predict the next encounter. Um, and so what we've been doing is really giving people multiple pill cases, like put one in your pocket, put one in your backpack, put one in your coat, because you don't know where you're going to be. Um, you want to have those tablets with you um, in case you don't make it back home. Um, and then um, just ensuring that people have um, additional pills. I think one of the things we've worked with the insurance around is like we can't, so the way we write our prescriptions is take as directed. Um, and we give 30 days supply of pills because we know that people might end up taking them um, every day over the month. And so we don't want people to run short and start to ration um, their medications or start to borrow their uh, friends, which we know is currently happening. Um, so these are the data from the Modified Intention to Treat analysis of the Ypergay study. Um, and there were, they had a very high HIV incidence in the placebo arm of 6.6. Um, and so I think on average, the MSM, the men had about nine partners um, in the preceding three months. Um, and it had a 97% re relative reduction um, versus placebo. Um, just remember um, IPREX, which was done before there was all this additional data on uh, prevention efficacy, um, was 44%. Um, and this is also relatively close to the uh, PROUD study, which was done in, um, in London, that had a, a relative reduction of about 90%. So um, on par with what we've seen in our, um, in our daily prep studies. Now, one thing to remember is that these were men who were having a lot of sex, and so they were taking a lot of pills. Um, and the mean number of pills is about 18 um, per month. So we know from some of our modeling data that about four tablets or more a week is associated with, um, with higher levels of protection. So the question that comes up, and particularly for individuals who want to offer uh, on-demand prep, it's often targeted for people who have sex less frequently. Um, and so there's been some data from Ypergay looking at those men. Um, and it does appear that um, despite having a lot uh, fewer sex partners, um, there were still no HIV infections among that subset. So these are 
very small number of person years of follow-up, about 64 to 68 in each of the arms, um, but there was a, um, a significant decrease in the um, incidence, so it was 9% in the placebo arm. So I think reflecting that just because somebody has less frequent sex doesn't mean that they're at less or lower risk for HIV. Um, a lot of our modeling data suggests that after about five or six partners, that it actually is pretty flat, um, the HIV risk that occurs for individuals. So this incidence is actually higher than was in the placebo arm of the, the main trial. So um, CDC does not recommend uh, on-demand PrEP. ISA USA uh, does recommend it as an alternative. Um, San Francisco Department of Public Health has endorsed on-demand PrEP, was offering it at Kaiser San Francisco now. Um, so there are multiple uh, organizations and jurisdictions that are now supporting um, on-demand PrEP as an alternative. Um, and one important thing to remember for those who are offering PrEP to cis women, trans women, and people who inject drugs is um, that uh, daily PrEP is recommended for them and that those are some of the caveats. So what we try to outline for individuals is like, who is 211 best for? Um, and so 211 has just been studied in MSM. Daily PrEP is uh, for anyone. For uh, importance to screen for hepatitis B, which is um, not a contraindication for daily PrEP, but can trigger a flare and um, on demand. Um, and then we talked about planning and then this idea of forgiveness. Um, so we have a lot of reservations of 211 for individuals who have a lot of disorganization in their um, lives and particularly stimulant use um, because there's not the forgiveness for misdoses that can, um, that daily prep does have. So wanted to move on to the next um, case. So 48 year old MSM with hypertension comes in requesting prep. Um, he has multiple partners, frequent sex and frequent STIs. Creatinine is uh, 1.7 and his clearance is 61. What would you do? Prescribe daily prep, prescribe daily uh, uh, with TDF FTC, with TAF FTC, um, give it every other day, give it 211. Tell them to use condoms because uh, prep's not going to work with all these STIs. All right, so uh, this will be interesting. So 51% um, uh, would prescribe daily Truvada, 31% would prescribe um, daily Descovy, 3% um, every other day, and 10% 211. Who wants to, Joe, you want to go for it? Yeah, I mean, I, I picked two. Um, I, I think you could you could do uh, a TDF FTC. I think that would probably be okay. You'd, probably want to monitor him a little bit more carefully than, than at least the CDC guidelines would suggest. But um, uh, I think, and I'm, I'm sure Jaime will get into it, that the, at Croy uh, we saw the results of the Discover study. And, and I, I, I have issues with that study, uh, but um, uh, I do think that uh, TAF-FTC is very, very, very likely to work in this setting. And so I, I, would, I would probably do that. I know Monica. Gandhi and others have data suggesting that age and, and renal function are predictors of increased risk from TDF-FTC, which doesn't surprise anybody here that's used it all the time. So um, that, that's probably what I would do, though, though you could argue A, I think. 
I, I think the other ones, like like every other day, I, I just don't know. I mean, maybe it'd be fine, but I, I don't know. And two one one doesn't make sense because he's having frequent sex. He'd probably end up maybe getting take it daily too much. Uh, he'd be taking it daily, and and obviously the last one doesn't make any sense. Go. Cool. I mean, I'll just say that I didn't know what the, I don't know what the answer is either because I don't know how you define frequent sex. Is it more oh. sex than I have? <laughs> uh, <laughs> it's relative, uh, I guess. <laughs> number one, and so so I just don't you know I I, I don't think we do know. I do think that. Um, Someone who comes into that, if we're going to prescribe daily TDF-FTC, I would probably keep them on a, at least for several months on a monthly mm -hmm. follow-up just to see, A, what the adherence is, and number two, uh, you know, how his current clearance is doing, et cetera. Um, and um, so, you know, I think that, you know, all this is, is kind of curious to me. I'm always kind of curious to know when someone presents with that history document, how do they manage to stay HIV negative during uh, anyway, and so was it you know was it the communities where they're having sex or what it what it is, and we don't have any way to really investigate that further. Um, yeah. But I've had situations where we're clearly and it's very different. But you know heterosexual partners who have been negative and and you know my <coughs> undetectable um, wife wants her husband to start mm -hmm. um, uh, prep. And we've talked about, well, they went 20 years without it. And this is before we had data on, you know, U equals U. Yeah. Um, and so what that meant. Um, and they elected not to do it. They were both comfortable with that. So it's very individualized. But I still don't know what frequent it means. Well, we'll assume frequently is uh, three <laughs> times a week. Okay. Yeah. Um, so, so I just want to go through some of these um, points that were raised here. Um, oh, is that not frequent enough for people? <laughs> <laughs> Every other day. Uh, so, uh, okay, so this is a, the data from the Discover trial um, that evaluated Truvada versus Descovy, essentially. Um, this was an um, incident race ratio, so it was the uh, rate of infections among those in the TAF, um, FTAF versus FTDF arm. Um, there are 15 infections in the um, FTDF arm and seven in the FTAF arm. Um, and they did have, a, um, I think, four infections among the FTDF were thought to have occurred at baseline, um, and there was only one in the FTAF arm. Um, so there, this was a non-inferiority trial, and I think as was commented earlier, these um, trials, because the active placebo arm is the only ethical um, way to, to do these studies, um, is that these are very large studies. So this was a study of uh, over 5,000 um, individuals. So it did meet the non-inferiority margin, so um, did appear to be non-inferior to Truvada for um, prevention of HIV, um, and that there were safety um, renal markers. There, was, there were a large number of people, so there was a, a slight difference in GFR. I think it was um, a large point was made in the in the meeting of, for a very small difference in GFR change, these are healthy individuals, um, and that this was also a very, this was not a diverse cohort, this was not uh, reflective of the HIV diagnoses that exist, that happened in the United States, 84% were white, 8% were, um, were African American, and I believe only one to 2% were trans individuals, even though it was open for trans. Um, but overall, the primary endpoint, this, um, FTAF was not inferior to TDF, so I think provides good evidence in a large trial um, with a um, large number of uh, person years of follow-up that FTAF is an option for, um, for PrEP. 
um, with the uh, ability for us to use this down to a credit clearance of 30. Um, so I think this is why I think some of us would move towards FTAF um, in this situation. Um, this is some uh, data on um, that I mentioned earlier on the efficacy versus um, sort of two to four times a week. These are averages based on DBS, um, but you can see in those curves that those are the incidents and that um, incidence doesn't really start to go up, um, you know, until you get to less than four doses um, per week um, with the efficacy that drops down into the sort of 56 to 96 um, percent range for the, the confidence interval. Um, and there's been some um, other data on the renal effects and particularly older people. So this is some data um, that with those with a baseline EGFR of less than 90 um, and those who are over the age of 40, that there's an increased risk of uh, sort of worsening of renal function. So this person was 48 um, and had a GFR that started out, sorry, creatinine clearance that started out 61. Um, there was some data from Partners Prep and Partners, Dem uh, Partners Demo Project um, and that there was no difference if you uh, screened individuals every three versus six months. Um, and so there's some, uh, some data from the TIES trial that, um, that there was no effect on creatinine, um, but that there was more likely to have renal impacts with those who were older, which is more consistent with the Kaiser and the IPREX-OLA data. Um, and then in all these studies, that stopping PrEP reverted back to baseline. Um, and then in many cases, we've actually rechallenged individuals. Um, I think somebody who starts out at 61, um, you know, we would have a um, more frequent monitoring every month and then every three months if it's stable. Um, but they're going to start an NSAID or something at some point, and then it's going to drop below 60, and you're going to have to stop. So I think um, that's why favoring using something like um, FTAF instead. These are some data from Ypergay. So Ypergay, as you remember, was this 211. Um, and they looked at, in a stratified way, number of pills per month um, that people reported in the last two months. And there did appear to be this sort of dose, um, uh, this dose response that occurred for individuals who had uh, fewer doses. There seemed to be a, a sort of less impact on uh, EGFR. Um, and so if somebody is having frequent sex and is taking four to five pills um, per week anyway, um, you know, you're not going to really save much um, in, in a renal um, safety with uh, 211, but it does appear that it might have some renal, uh, less renal impact because just the uh, lower exposure. Um, this is, comes up frequently because people are always worried about their kidneys when we're talking about PrEP. It's a frequent complaint. Um, and so, uh, and the question we often get asked is, if I take 211, is it going to be less toxic for my kidneys? And I think that... Um, these data suggest that if you take fewer pills, there might be less impact, but we can't say that it's going to be safer um, for your kidneys. Um, and then the last uh, point around STDs. So we're seeing a lot of STIs, um, a lot of STIs, um, and a lot of syphilis and a lot of complications of syphilis. Um, we've seen syphilis um, osteitis. We've seen lots of blindness. and um, so. Um, but there doesn't appear that... Um, these STIs are lowering the efficacy of PrEP in um, trials. I think the Kaiser data has been really um, helpful in that despite having a lot of STIs, um, there were still no HIV infections. Um, and so I think that this is um, reassuring that some of the risk modification that we um, are observing in real-world implementation is still not undermining the efficacy of PrEP. 
Um, and this extends into the open label studies as well, proud in the, the demo study. Um, this was a meta-analysis, I'm gonna skip through quickly, but um, just overall that there was, um, uh, it looks like individuals who are on PrEP may have an increased rate of uh, acquisition of STIs. Um, there are uh, multiple studies that have looked at this, and there's a study from uh, Australia that actually looked at what kind of sex are people having, and I think this was really, what I found interesting, this was presented at IAS over the summer, and it appeared that there was more group sex that was happening, um, and that that was actually one of the independent risk factors for acquisition of STIs. Um, and we've had several uh, MSM who've come in with um, sort of GI infections, Campylobacter, Shigella, um, who denied any anal oral contact, um, but had acquired these in sort of a setting of a group setting, sex setting. Um, so I think we're trying to evaluate and look at more what's happening in these group settings. Um, and then I think also focusing on um, chemoprophylaxis for STIs. Um, just as we've seen a massive reduction in HIV infections um, in places where PrEP has been implemented widely, I think we're gonna need something else for STIs besides just um, what we're doing. All right, so um, this is a 29-year-old MSM uh, who's in a zero-different relationship with a positive partner who comes in asking for PrEP. When you ask him, he explains his partner is fully virally suppressed and has been so for over a year, but he would feel more comfortable being on PrEP. What would you do? So 71% would prescribe PrEP and 29% would prescribe PrEP for now and then hope to eliminate it in the future. Who wants to take this one? Well, I can just kick off. So I did option B, um, prescribe PrEP for now but hope for eliminating in the future. And I'm, you're gonna get into U equals U. I think what was driving me as well and I think is particularly important is if someone walks in your door and says, I'm interested in PrEP, what we shouldn't be doing is say, no, right? Yeah. <laughs> because that person's going to leave and tell other people. And also, we don't know who's asking these questions, right? How you ask a question is predictive of the response. So if you feel judged or if you're afraid that somebody's going to, you know, no, nobody in this, I mean, I remember I come from New England. So everyone here is really nice. In New England, <laughs> not so nice. And so we have to deal a lot with providers who the way they're asking questions make people feel uncomfortable. And so it changes what they're reporting. And so if you come and you say you need it, give it to them. Yeah, the, the only thing I would say is just it, it's so important to find out what they're asking, right, and, and what they understand. Uh, I, I think because they may be asking, well, I have other partners, right. but I'm not really exactly. going to tell you about it. Right. And, right. and I think that's really important. I mean, if over time, and maybe that's why you pick choice number two, if over time you learn that, no, 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 they, they don't have other partners, exactly. and, and, and now you've helped them understand the whole you equals you thing, then, then, yep. they, then maybe then they feel comfortable. So I think it does really depend a little bit about whether they have a misconception about their risk or they have real risk that they, they don't want to. Exactly. Uh, yeah. You just said that, I guess. 
Let me just let me just add to that that you know I, again I think that I, I totally agree ex- with except the fact that a lot of times at least I'm not always the best at, at obtaining the deep um, sexual practices history, and you know a 29 year old man or woman may have a hard time um, admitting to a healthcare professional um, that they actually are having thoughts of or when they go on business trips or whatever are, in fact, um, having relationships outside their primary relationship. And so, you know, you can ask and you can, um, you know, feel comfortable in their answer, but I still would acknowledge that person's um, concern about risk and would prescribe it um, and then in follow-up continue to kind of assess that um, as well. So I uh, I just think the history is, they, a lot of times, as Joe said, they're, they're really asking questions that, they may not be willing to answer, even if you address that. Yeah, not everybody wants to admit they're guest stars. Right. So, um, and so uh, this is really about sort of this idea of, we're going to talk about U equals U, but I think really hit on the uh, important point of um, somebody's asking for PrEP, we should be giving it to them. We shouldn't be creating more barriers. They already made that effort um, to uh, to come in to, to ask about it. Um, so. Um, just to go a little bit into U equals U, so uh, this was data from um, HPTN 052, which was also an ACTD study, but uh, Chip is on his computer. So, um, yeah, so, uh, so, um, so it showed that there, were, um, there was a, a significant reduction in HIV transmissions in the setting of um, serodiscordant couples. I just also want to point out all of these studies in which they have looked at um, viral suppression, there are about 29% of new infections that occur outside of those relationships. And so from a, a absolute biological plausibility, yes, U equals U. However, from a population and community level, we still have 30% of these infections that are occurring um, in the community. And so I think this is really the role for PrEP, because even if this person is undetectable, um, if there are other outside partners, they might not be. Um, and so there are more ob- observational studies. Um, these are the um, three of the couple studies, partner one, partner two, and opposites attract. Um, there was a paucity of data for MSM. A lot of the data, there were very few uh, uh, MSM couples in HPTN052. Um, and unlike in um, the PrEP studies where there are HIV infections, um, we have not seen um, HIV transmissions in these uh, studies where the uh, partner has been um, virally suppressed that have been linked. So um, there are, the confidence intervals continue to shrink, but the point of estimate is still zero. It's been zero, and all the studies has been zero. Um, and so I think we have um, accumulated enough data, and the CDC has sort of uh, also sent this to your colleague letter, um, sort of um, supporting the policy statements of U equals U. Um, and then we have within our clinic also sort of work to help providers feel comfortable saying that um, you might want to use condoms for STI and pregnancy prevention, but they are not necessary for HIV prevention with your HIV negative partners as long as you're undetectable um, because that is what the data show. And I think it's very hard for many of us to say that because of all the prevention messages around the use of condoms and um, and the concerns about transmission. Um, but all the studies, the estimates are zero. Um, and condoms do not work 100%. Um, this is condom efficacy. So I think we forget that condoms are not 100%, even though we um, 
really advocate for them. So for MSM, um, in particular, 70% effective using data from two large cohorts. And the um, important piece of this is that 70% when it's reported 100% um, use. So if somebody has 98% use, there was no protection. So it was all, they had the same uh, proportion of HIV diagnoses as those who didn't use condoms at all. And so um, getting at, um, it's hard for people to integrate condoms sometimes into their sexual um, practices. Um, and that, and in our data, suggests that if we counsel them, we actually might cause more STIs. Um, so this is another study that was uh, in CROI last year um, that sort of asked HIV positive MSM what, how many of their partners are taking PrEP. Um, and it actually was, uh, at least in this study, um, uh, very few were taking PrEP. And that 27% uh, of people who are not virally suppressed um, uh, had partners who were not on PrEP. So thinking about where is the transmission potential that exists within the, um, the key population that we want to focus on for our prevention efforts. Um, and then also looking at, so is, are, you, are you you in terms of like, if you self-report that you are virally undetectable, if we draw your labs, are you actually virally undetectable? Um, and the answer is that um, only about 53% um, in this study that was presented last year um, did people have an undetectable viral load. Um, so um, just thinking about how we help people make sure that they're in care um, and, um, and understand that there are some caveats um, to some of these uh, data. All right, so this is a 28-year-old HIV-negative woman in a serodifferent uh, relationship with a positive man. Um, he is not. He is newly diagnosed and not yet stably virally suppressed. The couple wants to have a baby. So, what do you recommend? This song is on my playlist request. <laughs> I don't even know who this is. Oh, okay. Spotify is going to get a letter. All right. So um, to wait for the partner to become virally suppressed, um, use PrEP is safe periconception and in pregnancy, and 2% said that the safety is unknown, so we wouldn't use PrEP, and we want to use sperm washing. Does anybody want to take this? See a lot of people. Well, no. I, I, you know, uh, I guess you know. How likely are they to wait? I guess uh, to me, I mean, I think that if if there is a stable couple and 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 you have a relationship with them, that I think it's really best for um, safest for the couple and the partnership, and then for the um, uh, fetus and hopefully infant. Um, to, to wait until the male partner is fully suppressed. Now, do, do they need to be fully suppressed for at least six months? I don't know. I mean, that's the prep people say that. I, I don't. I don't. I don't know if that's actually true. Um, uh, but I, I would want to have at least the two tests that showed that they were um, uh, that he was uh, below uh, the detectable limit. I don't think he would need to be not detected. They can be below 40 or below 20 or whatever you use and, and quantifiable that, I think that's fine. Um, I, I think 
PrEP probably is safe in the periconception period, but I, I just don't know why, why would you take that risk. We know that um, <coughs> women, uh, once they become pregnant, might be have increased susceptibility uh, to infection, and you don't obviously know exactly when a woman becomes pregnant, so, so um, I, I, would, I would choose number one. Advocate. I mean, I agree as a provider, my choice is number one, but I think in counseling her, number one is like what you want, and number two is maybe what you're going to get, yes. and you want to make sure yeah. that you give number two as an option so you're not saying, yeah, yeah, do what I sure, say, sure, sure. and then if you don't, and I, I think we're on the same page, I mean, if I could pick, but the truth is, is, you say to her, I think we all have this concern about women in PrEP, PrEP works if you take it in women. So she needs to really understand this is this is only going to work if you take it, and this is about you know your health and health of your baby, yeah, blah blah blah. You know, I, so so I this is sort of like where we have to put our faith in the data, and then mm. our communication skills. Um, but there's some downside of, I would package one with two. Yeah, no, no, you're. I, I, I'm reconsidering already. I, I mean, you're. <laughs> you know, no, and well, he's I am running for president. No, yeah. no, no, <laughs> no, no I, I mean this issue of you know. The woman is the one who's in control of 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 of, of this in a, in a way. I mean, again, it a little bit depends on the relationship and 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 you know the you know the the male partner and has he been on and off therapy for the last ten years and is really inconsistent or is he recently diagnosed and you know I, but but again it it option two puts the safety in the a woman's hands now preferably you would have both he would start therapy and 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 they could wait, but but I, I think your argument's really good. There were a bunch of pregnancies and partners in PrEP, and, and you know, with that exposure, they seemed okay. Uh, and and we, have women, we, we have women all the time who are HIV infected who become pregnant, and it seems okay. So, um, I, I mean, I, it's probably not a zero risk, but it's probably a small one. So, yeah, I, I reconsider. We get a comment over here. Uh, does she have to wait three weeks? We'll get into those data. Yeah, yeah. That, that's another made-up thing. Not the folic acid. Not the folic acid. We're not going to go. Yeah, that, that I don't know. I'm, I'm not so I just want to add that um, So a little different spin on the conversation, um, and I'm sympathetic to both the one and the two in the conversation. I think one of the things in, in a, the community health center world that I live in and working with some of our patients I'd also want to have a conversation about why pregnancy, why now? That they, I mean, obviously, if this is what they want to do, they absolutely have the right to do that. But sometimes people make decisions, and they haven't always thought, I mean, at least my patients, haven't always thought them out completely. <laughs> and so sometimes it's really helpful just to say, well, look, um, what's the background? What are you guys doing? What's the plan to support you all? I mean, a lot of my substance users, they're going to need a lot of support. Um, I mean, I've never been pregnant, but I hear it's difficult. Um, but in the postpartum <laughs> period, right, my drug users have a bigger problem. And they're usually planning for issues while they're pregnant, and they're not even thinking about the postpartum world where they're not sleeping, they're under more stress, and my drug users are more likely to relapse. So mm -hmm. I, we didn't talk about it, and that wasn't necessarily the point of the question, but I do think you're the healthcare provider, you're providing care, you want to do right by both of them, and it's worth asking the question. Yeah, that's a good point. Okay, so um, 
Uh, as was alluded to, this is a HIV risk during pregnancy, and, and I like to show this slide because um, I think we don't always appreciate that in early pregnancy and even late pregnancy that the HIV risk um, of transmission actually goes up quite substantially um, uh, compared to um, sort of non-pregnant individuals. So this was a large um, trial from two from two studies um, in Sub-Saharan Africa where there was frequent HIV and uh, pregnancy testing, um, and then these were their linked um, infections as well. So um, it goes from 1.05 to 4.8. Um, in um, sort of postpartum. So um, even if uh, the um, decision around PrEP, uh, just keeping in mind that there's a risk of, um, of HIV infection during pregnancy as well. It's actually quite high. Um, and there is, um, you know, a lack of data for safety of PrEP during pregnancy, but this was, uh, in many of the PrEP studies, women, when they were, um, when they became pregnant, they were, their PrEP was stopped. Um, and so this was a study of um, uh, 30 women compared to 96 women um, who were not exposed to PrEP, and there was no difference in uh, miscarriages, congenital abnormalities, or growth uh, through uh, the first year of pregnancy. There was a slightly lower Z-scores for length and head circumference at one month, um, but that sort of resolved at, um, at one year. So I think we still need more data. Um, but I think that thinking about what the, the risk benefit of um, PrEP for a, a woman, um, given her increased risk for HIV acquisition during pregnancy, um, and that we have at least some data on safety of PrEP during pregnancy, um, that having that conversation and letting the woman decide um, what she feels comfortable with. All right, so, yes. Um, it's not clear. Um, what the biological uh, mechanisms would be for um, for that increased risk? No, 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 no those are those are non-prep. Non yeah, I always interpreted that like is that they used less condoms yeah. and that condom use was less defensible for the woman during pregnancy because it was like, well, you're already pregnant, so why would I have to use a condom? I don't know that that has fully yeah. sorted out, but there's a lot of lack of self-efficacy and having the male partner use a condom, one would imagine, during that time. I'm yeah, I mean, I think, I think we would definitely want some, like, qualitative, to, mm -hmm. like, uh, better qualitative understanding of what the relation, how relationships change during pregnancy and what type of power dynamics are lost or gained during pregnancy for women, um, particularly in that, in that setting. So um, just in the interest of time, um, so this was a, um, was a, there was a question about this earlier um, that I wanted to make sure we addressed. So this is a 35-year-old man, MSM, in a serial different relationship, come in, comes in seeking PrEP. Um, he says his partner is unsuppressed and um, is starting a new regimen. Um, he's had to change it a few times, and he's pretty sure his partner mentioned something about M184V, um, and he doesn't like using condoms. So what do you recommend? So 46% said they'd um, prescribe um, Truvada or Descovi. About this uh, quarter said use condoms or prescribe three-drug PEP. Doug, do you want to take the shot, first shot at this? I said prescribe three-drug 
post-exposure prophylaxis. So they've been engaging in sexual activity. Don't know if it's frequent or not. Um, been unsuppressed. And so I'm concerned that, and I don't know what his HIV status is at this point, so I'm concerned that potentially he's got an exposure and needs post-exposure prophylaxis. Okay. Would you continue, um, what would you do after 30 days? I was hoping you wouldn't ask me that. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I, I would provide, I would prescribe uh, normal prep after that. Okay, cool. Anyone else? I, I probably would too. I mean, we, we know in Partners in Prep that TDF alone had activity that, that wasn't significantly different than TDF FTC, and um, it was less numerically. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, as an alternative, uh, you know, again, as, as um, Doug already said, you're not going to make them use condoms. I mean, you might, you might encourage it, but it's, it's uh, and, and I don't know, I don't know what the something else would be. So I, I would, I would uh, use TDF FTC, not TAF FTC, mm. um, and um, and because that's where there's some data with TDF and and. And he might have some increased risk. Yeah. Okay. So um, there was a publication in Lancet HIV last year that looked at um, breakthrough PrEP infections. And I think this is a scenario because we see um, M184V so frequently um, that looked at among breakthrough infections, what were the resistance mutations? Um, and so M184V is present in almost all of these patterns, um, except for the one from Amsterdam where there was no resistance. Um, and these were high adherence, so they were measured by DBS um, or hair or both um, in these uh, situations. So I think in the case that uh, was at the top that was actually the primary case of this publication, we had a lot of questions about why TDF um, FTC failed in this case if the individual um, still should have been um, susceptible to TDF. Um, and so it, it is something that I think causes a lot of anxiety for many of us who are receive, who are uh, offering PrEP. Um, and I, don't, I think that um, offering PEP or PrEP with um, Truvada and not Descovy is sort of um, the, the way that we have sort of gone with this, with the understanding that there is a risk of failure given that we've seen these breakthrough infections um, if, that if that mutation is transmitted um, from the partner. Can you remind us if this resistance testing was done later, or at the, did they have archived at the time of, of infection that were they able to go back? Because if it's later, you don't know if it developed. Yeah, so these were um, the, these were cases where, particularly the first case, where um, there was a documented um, HIV negative for almost, I think, 13 months mm -hmm. before. Um, and then um, there was evidence of high adherence. So we don't have uh, pre and post in all of these. Um, but you're right, in um, very short order with tr exposure Truvada, you can develop the M184V. Um, and so these were cases where there's documented high adherence. And I think we've seen that more so in cases where there are sort of medium or low adherence. But that's a good point. I just, you know, because I don't know the right Oops. answer to this question, but. I, I gather that if you're going to consider three-drug therapy, you need more uh, evidence than simply the one, 184V. If you're going to use that line of thinking, you need to know what the partner has been on and what other resistance mutations to help direct your third drug. Yeah. So we can't just rely on you know, sort of one sentinel concern, I think. 
Yeah, self-report would be potentially problematic. And yeah. then, you know, trying to get release information is something we do if somebody's getting care in your care setting. Um, then I think that that's also uh, important. That's an important point. Um, so just in the interest of time, I wanted to, um, there was a question about how long um, do you need to be on PrEP before being protected? Um, and these were some um, data looking at the EC90 of tenofovir and PBMCs. Um, and MSM, the recommendation has been about seven days. Um, and for women, it actually um, was 21 days, but there's growing consensus that um, actually at seven days that you get sufficient levels um, for uh, women that you don't actually need to extend this out. This is really based on um, tissue levels and cervical vaginal fluid. Um, and so we've sort of softened our recommendations to uh, be closer to what we recommend for, for MSM based on some of these um, PK data. And the second bullet tells you it's wrong, right? Because the, the second bullet says men need seven days before they're protected. And we know that's wrong from... From, um, from Ypergay. Ypergay. So, yeah. So, you know, just the, the recommendations were, I think, kind of pulled out of thin air. Or, yeah. Or, you know, we don't really know which are the first cells to get infected and which cell, you know, and it's very hard. I mean, I know... Um, uh, um, Mackenzie Cottrell and, and Angela Kashuba who does this work, and they try to couch it as best they can in terms of, you know, you know, not knowing precisely what cells need to have how much. Um, but but it does seem women need more and longer. But but whether it needs to be 21 days or not. Yeah, how much more and how much longer? I think, and I think this idea of continuing for 20 essentially a PEP course after last exposure. Ypergay for MSM also suggests you don't need that either, um, and that two doses post-sex would be sufficient. Um, and so I think as we get more clinical data and these sort of alternative strategies, um, and these, um, these correlates of protection actually are not going to be relevant in the new strategies for PrEP, such as capotegravir. Um, they're not going to be sort of uh, applicable in those settings. So I don't want to take too much time from... Um, uh, question and answer. So I just wanted to um, end on this slide as we have a lot of ambiguous HIV test results that occur in individuals who are accessing PrEP um, and that you have options which include continuing PrEP, um, particularly if you feel like somebody is adherent, um, stopping PrEP to assess HIV status, and then starting antiretroviral therapy. And I think that we have done all of these in different situations depending on what the patient's um, desires are, what their uh, concerns are, and what their comfort level is. Um, and each of them has um, potential consequences, particularly um, if you continue PrEP, um, you maintain protection if somebody has ongoing risk, but you risk resistance if they're truly infected. Um, if you stop PrEP, you can facilitate diagnosis, but you can actually also facilitate uh, infection if they're actually uninfected. Um, if you start ART, there are some drug-related AEs that can occur, but I think that that would might be less given our um, highly tolerable medications. Um, and it also can um, make it more difficult to confirm the diagnosis. So um, there is a PrEP line um, that is available for um, CDC funded to sort of work through these uh, cases. We actually get several of these cases uh, every month where we sort of talk through what the likely best approach is. Um, so, would encourage individuals if they have interesting cases or concerning cases to use this access this um, service, um, and I will stop there. And thank you for your time. I think we're going to take some questions. And Hyman, we we haven't been able to find a place 
at least commercially, where you can get an HIV DNA test. Um, I, I know that we, we can get it in our, our research lab, but in terms of somebody calling you from, I don't know, Washington, North Carolina, which is a really out of the way place. There's, mm. there's, there's no way to um, get an HIV DNA to help sort, especially the, the pathway of people um, who, who start ART to try to confirm a diagnosis. Yeah, um, I think AREP does uh, HIV DNA testing. Yeah, they do a lot of specialty testing. They're based in Utah. Um, and um, so we've used them for several. Um, I think they're one of the few places that does a Western blot as well. Um, and so they have some specialty testing. Yeah. And their, their prices are actually quite competitive too. Questions about what if the patient is a long-term non-progressor and you can't get um, viral load, you can't get a genotype. Um, so what what do you do in that in that scenario? You know, in terms of the, it, both their infectious risk to other people um, and also what how does that challenge you when you're trying to diagnose someone um, when they may have been newly infected or you don't know? Yeah. So um, that is definitely a, a challenge. I think what what we have tried. To do, and it depends on where you are uh, based, is um, there's some research tests that are done um, looking at, I think, some of the DNA tests um, um, to, try to, to, to try to make a diagnosis. And then I think for the long-term non-progressors, um, if this is in the setting of PrEP, um, if, I mean, that might be a scenario in which you stop PrEP, and then even if somebody is a long-term non-progressor, they will usually have a serologic shift, so there will be a serologic diagnosis that you can make. So I'm going to ask you some rapid-fire questions, and I'm going to ask you to answer in yes or no, or, or very short, okay? You can do it. I know you can. Does insurance cover Descovy for PrEP? Um, no. 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 <laughs> Not yet. no, I don't think so. Do you screen for Fanconi syndrome regularly? No. Okay. Um, do you, uh, for those who stop PrEP, how long do you continue PrEP after the last sex act? Uh, 28 days is what we used to recommend, um, but now with the Ypergate data, um, they recommend that they can take it, you know, two doses after their last sex. And then this is, uh, you, you, you get more than one word for this, but how much does um, a woman increase her risk of HIV transmission if she has anal sex versus if she doesn't? Um, is that acquisition or? Uh, a a well, yeah, acquisition. Acquisition? Yeah. Um, so we know that uh, anal sex um, has significantly uh, higher risk of transmission um, compared to uh, vaginal sex. So the risk of, of acquisition is going to be that of what MSM would be. So we know that that is about um, 0.7 per, per act. The per act uh, risk is about 0.7 um, to 0.8. Thank you so much, Heidi.